This week's Device Talks Weekly Podcast is brought to you by Device Talks Tuesdays. Join us this Tuesday at 4 p.m. to hear from our friends at Implexer. They're going to tell you what you need to do to ensure that your content system is ready for regulators. Go to devicetalks.com to register. It's free and you should be there. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Salami, welcome to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast, episode number 49. That's right, the big 5-0 is coming up, and I'm ready for it. I've been there, I've been through it. It's not so bad, and next week is going to be great, but this week is equally great because I had a chance to speak with Shacey Petrovic. She is the CEO and president of Insulin, a local Boston area company, north of Boston at least, but it's Massachusetts. Yay! And we had a uh, fantastic conversation about her move into MedTech, how she became CEO at the company, and what their strategy is for helping people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes. They have great technologies of working with other companies like Abbott and Dexcom. It's a real, I think, success, a MedTech success story. So happy to bring you that story. We're also going to uh, have a little preview of a discussion we're going to have on Clubhouse. The uh, discussion on Clubhouse will take place at 11.30 a.m. Eastern, but stay tuned and you'll hear more details coming up. We'll, of course, have Newmarker's Newsmakers for you. Absolutely will. And we'll also hear from our two great sponsors, Packworld USA and PSN Labs. Now, without any further delay, it's time to bring in Chris Newmarker. Chris Newmarker, happy Friday. Happy Friday, Tom. Good to be here, man. Yeah, we normally do this on Thursday, but uh, to be honest, we uh, got a whole bunch of good news, well, big news on Friday, some of it good, some of it not. So we wanted to uh, bring the absolute latest to our Device Talks weekly podcast listeners. Great. It's Friday. You know, it's actually nice doing it on Friday. It always, you know, Friday is, you know, I, I, I love my job, but, you know, it's always nice, uh, you know, to get to a Friday and you're like, hey, I got a good week done and looking forward to the weekend. And hey, you know, it's getting warmer here in Minnesota. That's always good. Is it getting warmer in Massachusetts? It's a delightful day here in Massachusetts, where we have this saying, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, thank God it's Friday. Have you heard of that one? You know, I have. I no, I thought that was local. That's, I, that's yeah. I think there's even a restaurant chain still around that uses that phrase. <laughs> Is that what that stands for? <laughs> yeah. no I would way. always say, "Let's go to eat at to gifts," and people would look at me funny. So, <laughs> all right. Who knew? Who knew? What is number five on the new markers newsmakers list, Chris Newmarker? Well, number five on the list, we've got uh, you know Baxter is going to uh, make uh, Moderna's uh, COVID nineteen vaccine right here in the U.S. They're going to make uh, Woo, USA, yeah, USA, you. They're going to make <laughs> sixty to ninety million doses uh, in 2021. That's the plan, and they're going to be making it uh, at the Baxter Biopharma Solutions uh, pl- facilities in uh, Bloomington, Indiana. So yeah, like USA Hoosiers. President Biden says we will all be vaccinated by July 4th. So I, I hope this will help toward that. Man, I hope so. I, I'm looking forward to a nice big family barbecue at uh, at the Newmarker uh, Homestead on, on July 4th. That sounds like a plan to me. And I, I like this, uh, get the vaccines available to everybody on May Day too. Like I hope, uh, like here's to hoping that, that works out too. So just, just feeling better every day, Tom. 
Every day's a little bit better, which is the right direction to go. Speaking of of better, let's move up the the ladder to number four. What is number four in the new Marcus Newsmakers list? Number four, you know, there's going to be, Boston Science going to be expanding its uh, Maple Grove, Minnesota campus. Uh, You know, for for those who don't know Boston Science a lot, uh, I mean, they're Boston Science. They're based in your neck of the woods, Tom. Uh But but they got a big, big uh, presence here in the the Twin Cities, uh, you know, roughly uh, 7,500 employees, actually. And they've got a, a big campus in Maple Grove and the West Metro. And then you move over to the other side of the metro, they got a big campus in Arden Hills. But they're going to be building a uh, fourth building in Maple Grove, uh, roughly 76,000 square feet. Uh, you know, no plans for for hiring more people, at least initially, uh, because this is just about, like, expanding um, an existing nine-all step manufacturing line. But, you know, this move is going to be opening up, uh, you know, space where that line used to be. And, you know, they mentioned, like, you know, future, you know, like increased needs for, you know, new new product lines in the future. So, you know, hey, I mean, this is a sign that there could be more more growth than uh, in Maple Grove in the future as well. But I mean, they just had like drug eluting stead devices that have been, you know, really successful, um, you know, such as Alluvia and Nova, you know, like a, a spokesperson for the company said like this expansion is just another sign of, you know, how much, uh, you know, the, the, those, the, those lines are going to grow even more. I've been to obviously Minneapolis and to Adina. Am I saying that right? But- Adina. Adina, thank Adina. you. Adina. <laughs> but Ma- Maple Grove, just, just the name sounds so pleasant. I just want to go go to Maple Grove and, and lie out in a grove of maples. Is it, is it a pleasant place, Maple Grove? It's, you know, it's a suburb, but it's a nice suburb, yeah. you know, and, uh, and really um, actually kind of like grown a lot in the last, last decade or so. They even have a brand new, well, actually it's not brand new. When I started as a healthcare reporter here, oh gosh, over a decade ago, it was brand new. That was like one of my first stories around here was going to visit the Maple Grove Hospital, had that new hospital smell, I guess. Of, uh, <laughs> you know, um, I love that new hospital smell. <laughs> I'm like, that new hospital <laughs> I think it's brand new. Like, you know, but, uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's new. It's got that new suburb feel, you know, it's kind of like, like a- that sounds great. All right. Well, let's move on down the list to number three. What is number three in the new Marcus Newsmakers list, Chris? You know, number uh, three on the list is, uh, you know, we've got a, a really nice uh, roundup slash slideshow that's in full on our, uh, our sister site, Drug Delivery Businesses. It's just a really good timeline from our farm editor, Brian Bunce, on, you know, the um, – the actually pretty new history of the continuous glucose monitor it kind of travels through like you know the past 20 years of you know cgm development all these products coming out it's uh oh it's it's pretty fun actually i mean you know it's it's neat to you know start out way back in you know 1999 and you know the early 2000s and see these uh these like cgm devices that look kind of like like um yeah, I mean, they look like pagers. I mean, when they started out, they looked like pagers. Yeah. And now we're like, you know, here we are, you know, with, uh, you know, these these devices just look so, so sleek. I mean, they run on smartphones. They last for days, even weeks. I mean, it's just it's just pretty astounding just like how over 20 years these you know devices have gotten, you know, so much better and, you know, really, um, you know, really make a, a difference in a lot of in the lives of a lot of people with diabetes, really help them. We'll be later on. We'll be running our uh, conversation with Shacy Petrovic from Insulet, awesome. and uh, she's uh, she's really got a, a great program going on there. And we just had a really excellent conversation about really how close these companies are to the their patient communities. And and you're right, the tech that they're starting to build into their their systems of delivering glucose, it's going to make people's lives a lot easier. She said that type one diabetic who has to apply insulin and just monitor their diet and their exercise and everything has to make 300 decisions a day, which just sounds to me like 
you have another child or another full-time job. So uh, it's, it's excellent that uh, these this technology keeps getting better and better. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's a really great example of how like MedTech at its best can, can really just change people's lives for the better. Absolutely. Hey everyone, this is Tom. Got a great interview coming up, a shorter interview coming up with Dr. Nikki Panish. She is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Calameo. Calameo is making a basically a countertop point of care solution to process N95 masks. It uses heat, heat rather than chemicals. And it's a, a product that came that was developed when Dr. Panish was working as part of the Stanford Biomedical Program. She was part of the, she was attending the business school and became involved with the biomedical program. We'll talk a little bit about the company and about the product and about her, her entrepreneurial process in this interview, but it's very short because I want you to join us on Clubhouse at 11.30 a.m. Eastern this Monday. Uh, Nikki Panish will be on with us. She'll share her story. I'll talk to her a bit. But this is an opportunity for you to come with your questions, for you to come with your entrepreneurial stories as well. So let's listen to this short interview with Dr. Nikki Panish. Again, she is the CEO of a company called Calameo, and they have produced Calameo Clean, which is a, a desktop way of of disinfecting N95 masks, but she's also a working physician and she has a family. So this is a great opportunity for you to learn how she managed to also start a company. But first, we're going to hear from one of our sponsors, Packworld USA. We learned a lot about Packworld USA in last week's episode. This week, sales manager Brandon Hoser is back. He's going to tell us why Packworld's toss advantage helps the company stand out from competitors. Packworld heat sealers use TOS technology, which is an advanced form of impulse heat sealing. In a generic sense, impulse heat sealing powers a heating element or heat seal band only during an active sealing cycle. Unlike constant heat methods, impulse enables a cooling period where power is turned off to the heat seal band and heat dissipates for a specific amount of time or to a specific temperature. A cooling cycle allows now molten material to cool and solidify, which ensures great hermetic and cosmetic heat seals. Not all impulse heat sealers are created equal. Low-cost machines controlled by a potentiometer only vary the amount of power to the heat seal bands and do not have any real means of temperature control, which is required in a validated process. Other forms of impulse heat sealers use thermocouples to control the temperature on the heat seal bands. Thermocouples have some inherent flaws such as slow response time and only measuring a single point of the heat seal band. TOS technology used in a Packworld heat sealing machine is more sophisticated using what we call variable resistance control. This means the heat seal controller knows what the resistance of the heat seal band is at all times, and that resistance correlates with the precise temperature. The system then applies power and modulates to hold a precise resistance and therefore temperature. All of this happens in milliseconds with a controller able to read 60 times per second. No thermocouples are needed, avoiding their inherent flaws. Because of TOS technology, Packroll heat sealers are able to be validated and provide perfect heat seals from first to last and one machine to the next. For more information, go to PackWorldUSA.com. Well, Nikki Panich, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. So how did you come up with the uh, the concept for uh, Calameo Clean? It's a, it's a point of care solution to process N95 masks. I know the fellows will go to a hospital, obviously, and they'll, usually, and they'll they'll observe and they'll try to identi- identify points that are problems that need to be solved. This one is clearly a problem that I think everyone knew about. 
uh, how did you, how did your group kind of focus on, on finding a solution for this? So I would say we were really focused on, um, as I said, we were working in the infection space and really um, had our finger on the pulse of what was coming out. Uh, some of the research for heat as a solution for mask reuse actually came out of Stanford. And so we were lucky to be privy to information, at, you know, as at the moment it was released and, uh, and really decided to capitalize on that and to that the world needed, uh, you know, as many different types of solutions for the problem that we could foresee was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And what was the process like uh, of starting the company? I know you you worked with the Fogarty Innovation or the Fog- formerly the Fogarty Institute earlier on. How did that come about? What was that? What was that experience like? So as I said, the the Stanford Biodesign Program was a six month program, and at the end of the program, each of the different groups had an opportunity to present for summer funding, and uh, representatives from Fogarty Innovation were part of the judging uh, group. And so we were connected with them and we were recipients of funding to continue our work beyond the six-month program. And we're very blessed to to have the Fogarty Innovation team as mentors for us. There is no way that we could have achieved what we did in the amount of time that we did without their um, mentorship. And I would be remiss if I did not um, mention our engineering partner. So we... um, Towards the end of our six months at Stanford Biodesign, we're starting to reach out to um, have some assistance with the engineering work that we were doing. And we landed upon at Phoenix Deventures um, and the CEO there is very innovative in how he thinks. And so we've actually done a collaboration with them in many ways. So they've been our engineering partners. And again, there is no way that we could have um, achieved the timelines that we did without, without that partnership as well. I see. Okay. So what is the plan next for, uh, for Calameo Clean? Are you, are you commercialized? You're selling this? Yeah. So our, our very first product, the Calameo Clean device is now officially out um, on the market for sale. And we would love, you know, love to see this go everywhere because we know that the world uh, needs this. I think the thing that makes us unique is that we're really focused on point of care. The way that um, N95s work is that they're fitted to your face and um, there's a concern reusing a mask that has been worn by somebody else. A, we've heard stories about um, makeup and you know other you know other people's uh, personal uh, you know personal makeup and what have you being there, and people don't like that. But also a concern about the mask not forming a complete seal, and without forming a complete seal, it's just not effective. And so being able to um, know where your mask has been and be able to place your mask back on, I think is a really unique feature that we offer for our customers. Thanks, Dr. Nikki Panish. Again, join us at 11.30 a.m. Eastern on Clubhouse. You can find the Device Talks group, and we will have our discussion there. What's number two on the New Markers Newsmakers list? Okay, number two on the list is uh, Abbott is announcing a pandemic defense coalition that's going to be cool. Yeah, yeah, and it's going to be monitoring around the world for uh, future pandemic threats. And, uh, and you know, they've got tons of partners. You know, with this already. Um, you know, everything from um, you know, like like they get they've got. Uh, you know, out, outfits like in all kinds of countries ranging from Colombia to Thailand to South Africa to India. And, you know, and this really isn't, um, I, I mean, 
Abbott has has some really good experience with that, actually, specifically with the uh, with the HIV virus. I mean, they've been monitoring the HIV virus for uh, for decades. They actually some of their you know researchers just uh, recently announced they'd find it found a subset of people in Central Africa who had uh, you know seem to have like really good uh, th- their bodies seem to be handling the HIV virus uh, you know much better than most people um, without any drugs. And so, I mean, that group of people is going to could be really helpful to find uh, much better HIV treatments in, in the future, maybe even a cure. Um, so for so they know about monitoring potentially deadly viruses and uh, for them to be saying, hey, we're going to make this big effort, monitor for future pandemic threats. Um, you know, here, here's the, here's the hoping that they can like head off, uh, you know, a, a, you know, future pandemic at the pass, you know, and prevent something like this from happening again. All right, bring it home, Chris Newmarker. What's number one on the big NN list? Hey, number one on the list. Uh, we had a really, uh, really good news conference yesterday from uh, you know Avonbed's top officials, uh, you know about uh, you know about everything that's gone on so far with uh, with the new Biden administration, and uh, it, it was it was interesting that they're you know they're pretty positive so far on on what what's been going on. Um, you know that uh, you know it, it helps that the uh, pandemic relief bill uh, that, that Biden just signed includes like $500 million in extra general purpose funding for, uh, for FDA. Uh, you know, so, I mean, that should hopefully help FDA be more, you know, responsive to the industry. Um, I mean, I've met uh, CEO Scott Whitaker was saying he was hoping that the money was spent wisely, but, um, but yeah, you know, so far, so, so good. It seems, uh, you know, he had some interesting things to say about the fact that we don't have an FDA commissioner yet, at least a full-time FDA commissioner. He was, he was saying that, um, that actually like he was, sounds like he was kind of glad that the Biden administration was taking its time and that, you know, you want to make sure you have somebody who is going to be really good in that job. Um, and it's extremely crucial job right now. And, you know, and it's okay right now because they've got, you know, FDA vet, veteran Janet Woodcock as uh, acting commissioner. So, I mean, you know, but it'd be good to get somebody, somebody who's just like re- got really good credentials can really um, kind of like, you know, lead FDA as we get out of this pandemic. There'd be some interesting questions for FDA too. I mean, because you're, you're kind of looking at, um, you know, all these EUAs that FDA has granted, like how are we going to or do permanent authorizations around that, all that stuff. It's going to be a lot to navigate. Was there any, I haven't seen any discussion about the breakthrough devices program. I imagine that's, that's whatever was adopted during the Trump administration will remain in place. Doesn't seem like there's any discussion about it not being. Yeah. I haven't heard anything about, about that changing, um, you know, the 510k reforms. I mean, as I said, I mean, that is one reason why it'd be nice to get, get a permanent commissioner yeah. in there, in there soon so that we can, you know, because I'm sure the new commissioner is going to kind of shape the agency around whatever, you know, he, he or she wants to do with it. Well, the, the relationship between the agency and industry seems to be continue to get better. It seems to have uh, been so, getting better. I mean, it was getting so let's better. Hope there's no step back. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it seemed to be getting better in like the in the Obama years and like it was a good relationship through the Trump years. So, so yeah, here's a, and, you know, at, at least so far, like the industry seems, you know, seems to be uh you know, given a pat on the back to the Biden administration so far. So we'll see how it goes. See how it goes. Now it's time for our keynote conversation. I had a great, great, great talk with Shacey Petrovic. She is the CEO and president of Insulet. I know you'll enjoy this conversation, but first let's hear from our friends at PSN Labs. 
Well, we're here with PSN Labs President Mike Alibrand. Mike, we learned a lot about PSN Labs last week. One question I had was about your LSR program. Tell us a bit about LSRs. Absolutely. So liquid silicone rubber, or LSR, is an elastomer material. It has a wide range of softness. So sure a durometer of five up to say 90 is pretty common. It's a two-part mixed material, usually. So it's a thermosetting material. Uh, It has extreme temperature use. So whether it's low temperature of say negative 55 to upwards of 300 C, it's pretty dynamic in the application that it can be used for. It's often used in medical devices uh, because of its soft touch feel or conformable nature. And what medical device makers are you working with? What type of companies need to know about more about this technology? Good question, Tom. And it's all across the board. We're working with a lot of OEMs that are creating wearable devices for a number of reasons. So like I mentioned before, it gives that soft, nice feel. So you could use it on the exterior of the medical device. So it feels good against your skin, but also because of that soft conformable nature, it's used for seals within components and how well that material seals is a product of how it's processed. So that is a bit of a science in of itself, figuring out that right time temperature relationship to give you the proper cure and therefore process for this material. Are there a lot of other companies out there working with LSR technology? There are companies out there, but there aren't near as many as there are working in traditional thermoplastics. So for example, in our geographic location, I'm not aware of another facility within hundred miles that allows one to come in and do R&D development. You do tend to find this development available However, those folks are usually big processors and they're hand to mouth to keep up with production. So to interrupt that production to do R&D can be a bit of a tall challenge, which makes us an attractive uh, partner for our clients. For more information, go to psnlabs.com. Well, Chasey Petrovic, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Tom. It's nice to finally have a Massachusetts person on the program. I've been uh, I've been too Minnesota heavy these days. So uh, <laughs> it's been too long. There's so much <laughs> tech here. That's right. So you were you were kind enough to be a keynote address at our device talks back in 2019, which feels like 1920. I don't know. It just uh, it, it's forever ago. And I think that yeah, man. I watched that video. I think that was your your first keynote as uh, as CEO. You became CEO that year, and uh, I can't imagine a a a, a, a more difficult sophomore year, at least in terms of a global sense. Uh, you had some challenges. So let's get into those in a moment. But first, I really love to learn how folks found their way into the med tech industry. So what was your uh, what was your entry point? Sure. My, uh, you know, I had always envisioned that I would go into research and development, actually. Oh, yeah. I loved uh, innovation and I have a double major in uh, biology and comparative literature, <laughs> uh, which is bizarre. It, it can tell you I was a bit, um, you know, schizophrenic when I was a student, but um, so that's where I thought I was headed. And I spent a summer doing research in a lab and then realized very quickly that it actually wasn't for me. You know, it was too isolating. Yeah. And so I, I, you know, my first job out of college was pharmaceutical sales. And uh, it was a way to combine my love of science and, you know, some of my interest around business and commercial and kind of went from there. I actually, you know, really did not love the pharmaceutical industry and selling for them, but I quickly got into med tech. My, my next uh, job was with a, uh, an early uh, stage commercial company where I was employee number 100, oh. uh, SciTech actually sure. based here in, um, in Massachusetts. And 
And that's really where I built my commercial career. And SciTech was eventually acquired by Hologic. So it, so it begins. Yep. And so then I stayed on and I spent 14 years there between the two of those companies. That's quite a 180 from a, a research position to a, a sales position. I mean, you you can't, you have to be a complete extrovert, I think, to really survive in the sales industry. Uh, was, <laughs> was, was that why you're more comfortable or? or? Well, I think so. You know, I was researching um, the estrogen cycle of doves uh, because it, it most closely resembled that of humans. And so I was stuck in a lab with, you know, a thousand doves uh, <laughs> monitoring them. And it just wasn't a good fit for me. So how could you not love that? That sounds like <laughs> it sounds like the ideal working situation. My God. <laughs> so uh, so you joined SciTech uh, mm-hmm. and uh, was it because you were interested in, in, in women's health or, or it was obviously it was a hot company at the time. Uh, it and Hologic were sort of the, the two rising uh, women's health companies and it was sort of a surprise when they ultimately merged. But, but what led to the opportunity in SciTech? Well, I was um, really interested just in innovation um, and, you know, they were changing the world in terms yeah. of uh, moving from conventional pap tests to liquid-based cytology. And I uh, loved that it was at the sort of, you know, precipice before all of that change was going to happen. And so, you know, really that's why I, uh, why I joined, I built my career in women's health. You know, I spent, uh, like I said, almost 15 years between the two companies there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did fall in love with, you know, the innovation that was happening in women's health, the impact uh, that I could make and just my personal connection, uh, obviously to the space. And actually after uh, Hologic, I went and ran a small women's healthcare company, a private company in uh, Utah that has since been acquired by Labory. When did you realize, again, it was from, from going to uh, education where you, you had comparative literature and, and science to getting into sales? And then ultimately, at some point, you must have realized you wanted to run a company, you wanted to be a CEO. What Do you know when that point was? Did it just feel like a natural progression or did you? It, it really did feel like a natural progression. You know, I didn't, you know, I, when I was in sales, I very quickly wanted to get into marketing. I wanted to get upstream in terms of the strategy, not just mm-hmm. the execution. Uh, I actually think the execution is great foundation for eventually, you know, being involved in the strategy because you're much more pragmatic and I think effective in terms of developing strategy if you've been involved firsthand in the execution. So I moved, you know, from sales into marketing leadership. And that is, in my mind, kind of the nerve center of any company because it really does connect with every function in the organization really directly involved. And so I loved that. Uh, and that I moved from marketing into general management. Uh, and then I was recruited away from my first CEO job. And, and what was attractive to me about that was the opportunity to build something um, mm-hmm. as opposed to lead a division within a large company and just the authorship uh, you know, that I could have over something like that. But I, I wasn't really aiming to be a CEO. Uh, you know, I was eventually recruited to become one, but, but not really you know, something that I sort of thought I wanted to do. Sure. And then, of course, I loved it. So um, it's been a great run. So yeah, let's just talk then about the the, the switch over to uh, to Insulet to be uh, chief commercial officer. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So what was it? What was the appeal of of that? Uh, had had uh, clinical innovations, the company you were leading, had that already been sold at that point, or did did it get sold? Uh, no, after? it was in process. Um, okay, so you knew the writing so- was on the wall. It did. Yeah. yeah. It was a bit uncertain, but it w- it looked, uh, you know, like it was going to happen. No, you know, Pat, my predecessor, uh, CEO here at Insulet is actually the former CEO of SciTech. Mm, so right. uh, because I had built, you know, a lot of my early career there, we knew each other pretty well. 
And he called me and said, Chasey, I want you to come be my chief commercial officer. And I said, well, Pat, I'm a CEO now. You know, <laughs> didn't you hear? <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, he said, well, look, Chasey, you know, I don't want to do this forever. I came out of retirement. This could be your opportunity to eventually run a public company. If it goes well, I need a successor. And the technology is remarkable and uh, I, we can fix these problems uh, mm-hmm. together. And so he sent me a link to Omnipod, uh, which is Insulet's uh, product. And he had no idea that my father lives with type one diabetes oh, wow. and uh, that I really had grown up with the disease and, uh, and its impact on families and people. And so I was immediately taken for a variety of reasons with the technology and the opportunity. And, and that's really what convinced me to come over. Uh, I was living in uh, Utah at the time. And so moved my family back to Boston. And, uh, you know, it was just an incredible opportunity. The, the market is enormous. The technology is differentiated. And at that time, you know, we were very small, really, uh, with an opportunity to I think uh, changed the game quite a bit. And so that's that's where we've been focused over the last six years. And uh, I don't regret the decision at all. It was probably one of the best decisions I've made in my career. Clearly. So it's interesting about your your, your dad. And uh, what is it about the, the diabetes community? I think in all of med tech, there's no stronger relationship between customer and company. Is that true? I think that's absolutely true. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Uh, It's an incredibly engaged community. Obviously, uh, we serve both the type one and the type two community, but the type one community in particular, a group of incredibly engaged, uh, incredibly empowered users that have really driven innovation in this space. They've driven regulatory policy changes. They've driven access changes. So uh, they're powerful. And um, what's so interesting is the intimacy that we have with our customers mm-hmm. in, in this uh, space. You know, you think about typical med tech and, uh, and everything in my career prior to Insulet, you are, you are selling and marketing to a number of physicians or to a number of hospitals or to a number of clinics in the thousands, maybe, maybe tens of thousands, depending on your space for a variety of reasons in the insulin pump and Omnipod, insulin pod uh, market, we are providers. So we do the benefits investigation. Oh, really? We <laughs> deliver benefits to the patient. We deliver the product directly to the patient. We train the patient. And then we typically support the patient for the first n- number of weeks or months to make sure that they get off successfully on uh, the technology. And so you know, it, it creates an incredible closeness to your end user, which is wonderful. It is, it's part of our mission. It informs our culture. Uh, and it, it's, it is one of the most fulfilling parts of my job. I would think, and this isn't to denigrate any other specialty, but the, to be a salesperson in this type of field requires a different, perhaps, personality to deal with the patient directly as opposed to just dealing with physicians. Is, is that is that true? I think that's right, Tom. In fact, um, this week we had our national sales meeting and I was reflecting on just what I heard from our team uh, during the awards night, which was uh, last night, actually. You know, in our field, we've got every territory has at least one clinician. So a mm-hmm. certified diabetes educator or a nurse who is partnered with a, a more traditional, you know, med tech salesperson, but they work very much in tandem and as a team, which means both of them have, you know, a strong connection to the patient, the end user of the device. And the way they talked about, you know, what drove them, you know, every person got up and talked about the number of lives that they changed wow. this last year. It wasn't about their revenue or the number of Omnipods that they sold. It was about the number of lives 
that they had changed in the last year. I mean, that that is our culture here at Insulet. It's very powerful and uh, and really a, it makes it a, a terrific place to work. That's terrific. So let's take a moment and just back up and uh, just tell our listeners a bit about Omnipod. Sure. So uh, Insulet is a, a company whose mission it is to, is to um, improve the lives of people living with diabetes. And we do that through Omnipod, which is our uh, really differentiated technology. It is a disposable waterproof pod uh, that you wear anywhere on your body that you would give yourself an injection. And it delivers three days of nonstop insulin for people who require it. And it's uh, controlled by a handheld controller uh, that looks just like, a, in fact, it is a lockdown cell phone. And uh, you program uh, your dose of insulin. You can enter your food and it will deliver uh, the appropriate amount of insulin on a daily basis. And then every three days, you dispose of that pod and put on a new one. It's, it is very differentiated from what other choices a person living with diabetes has. So, you know, somebody who's living and requires insulin on a daily basis can either inject themselves mm -hmm. four to five times a day. So uh, for that, uh, you know, compared to that, multiple daily injections, one pod replaces up to 15 injections wow. over three days. Uh, or you can wear a tubed insulin pump, which is a, a small piece of capital equipment that is connected to your abdomen via three to four feet of tubing. And then you control the, uh, you know, the insulin delivery based on that little uh, pager-like device, basically, that you're wearing on your hip that's mm -hmm. attached to the tubing. So those are uh, the choices that you have besides Omnipod. It's been very differentiated and really helping us to bring um, more, uh, you know, we call pod and pump therapy, continuous, uh, uh, continually infused insulin. And we bring that technology to uh, more people because the pod is simple, it's easy to use, and it's discreet. That's, that's amazing. And I think that speaks to why diabetes is so engaged. I mean, I can't think of a disease where I think they're probably thinking, and I'm fortunate not to have it, but I imagine you're thinking of it almost every minute of the day, everything you eat, every step you take, every, yeah. every action you take. Actually, Tom, it's a great observation. A person living with diabetes makes 300 decisions a day. Wow, yeah. really? Yeah. And, and I think it's a great observation too about why we have such intimacy with our customers because somebody who lives with and, and relies on our technology is interacting with it very frequently. You know, mm -hmm. you think about that. No other disease state really do you dose yourself with a potentially lethal drug every day, you know, and right. we're, we're expecting people to do that successfully. And to, to do that successfully, the technology has to be pretty easy to use, uh, pretty user-friendly. And know? and on the outside, they look healthy and they're expected to hold jobs and raise kids and have families. Right. And, and, but yet they're managing this as well. It's like another full-time right. job. That's right. So how do you, how do you build a market in, in this industry? Cause I imagine that there are just preferences to, to, technologies that some people may prefer Omnipod. Some people may prefer something else just because it's like we prefer, I'm holding up my phone. We prefer iPhones over, over droids. You know, just, there might be a, a preference. I like that input better, or this doesn't hurt as much, or how, how do you sort of build a, a market in this industry? Yeah. I, I think it's um, a really interesting uh, challenge actually, because, yeah. you know, it is, it's sitting at the intersection. Our technology sits at the intersection of med tech and consumer tech. In many ways, people who are adopting insulin delivery technology, like the pod or the pump, they shop for 
insulin pumps or Omnipod the way they shop for a cell phone, you know, yeah. because they're going to be living with this technology for a long time and want to be successful with it. So they will try out technologies. They'll uh, go to clinics and learn more about all of the technologies. And when we think about the market as a whole, you know, in the United States, there is approximately five to six million people in the U.S. that could benefit from our technology. Uh, who live with insulin-dependent diabetes, both type 1 and insulin-dependent type 2. And you ask yourself why, here, here we sit, insulin pumps were developed in the 80s. They were first launched in the 80s. And still today, somebody living with type 1 diabetes, you're only, only about a third of people living with type 1 use pump or pod therapy. So it's pretty, you know, it has not been broadly oh, adopted even though it delivers better outcomes, et cetera. And so why, why so, is So two thirds are still giving themselves injections? That's right. Yeah. Wow. And so you sort of asked, when I arrived, I said, well, why is that? Right. I knew my experience with my father and it did take me a long time to convince him to wear an insulin pump. Really? Yeah. Years, in fact. And, and it took a life-threatening situation in order for me to get him on to a pump. And it's because uh, the disease, you know, you, we just talked, you, you're making 300 decisions a day. If you have a little bit of control, you don't want to give that up. Um, mm -hmm. You don't want to introduce variables into your day. And so there is a lot of inertia around uh, technology use and um, patient uh, attitudes and even physician prescriptions. And so, you know, we have to focus really in three areas. We have to make this, the technology as simple to use as possible. Mm -hmm. And we really focus on reducing burden. We don't want to add burden to a patient. We really want to make their lives easier. The second thing is we have to focus on easy access. You know, these technologies for a variety of reasons that we could talk all day about um, are too expensive uh, and too difficult to access. And so we have focused a lot on bringing broad, affordable access to our users. And then the third thing is awareness. Even for well-established pump players that have been in the market since the 80s, very few people could call them out by name. Very few people living with type 1 diabetes. Uh, most people are not aware of the choices that exist. And so those are the three areas that we've been focused on. You know, How do we make the technology as simple as possible? Mm -hmm. How do we bring broad, affordable access to users? And how do we uh, make everybody aware that these choices uh, exist for them? And that's but that's you know been successful for us, and it's been part of what's been driving our uh, our growth over the last few years. Interesting, and you've had great growth. So where does that growth come from then? Because if you're this year, there's going to be I think three, at least three different diabetes products coming out, including your Omnipod Five, which we can talk about in a moment. You're really then you're not trying to take I would imagine as much market share from each other as opposed to trying to draw from that two thirds. To, to pick your tech? Well, we've been very focused on what we call the multiple daily injection user. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, I, I would argue that, in fact, I know that, you know, we convert more of those users than other uh, pump players where it's more of a share game, you know, where uh, durable tube pumps are trading share among one another. 80% of our new users come from multiple daily injections. And uh, the vast majority of them, more than 60% of them, tell us that they would not have ado adopted pump or pod therapy if not for Omnipod because mm -hmm. of all the things that we talked about, you know, the complexity of the technology, the cost of the technology, you know, Omnipod has solved for being simple, being affordable and being discreet. Uh, and those things are uh, what's helping us to bring continuous subcutaneous insulin infusion to more people uh, who are just injecting themselves on a daily basis. Let's talk about the, the the past year. A number of the hospitals slowed down their elective surgeries, quote unquote elective surgeries. You you don't you don't have a choice. You can't stop serving your customers clearly uh, during all of this. So, talk to me as to how it's been a year. What happened last March? 
how did you handle this? Uh, we can talk about clinical trials in a minute, but first let's focus on, on what happened in, in the plant. But yeah. how did you continue to serve your, your customers? Sure. And the question is, what happened last January? Because in fact, uh, we manufacture a good portion of our product in China with oh, a contract manufacturer. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and, and I think in some ways that was, uh, you know, a blessing in disguise because we were able to very quickly learn and then very quickly transport those learnings from China to our U.S. operations. We manufacture a product both in China and in the U.S., And, uh, you know, we organized over three principles. We wanted to keep our team safe. We wanted to preserve the well-being of our communities. And we wanted to get pods to our customers who were relying on us. And so everything we did uh, to manage our business was with those three principles in mind. And uh, so we very quickly implemented uh, all of the safety and and operational protocols that we had in China around temperature checks, around, um, you know, uh, nurse screening and around uh, home testing. Very quickly pulled all of that together in the U.S. Our operations did not miss a beat. We uh, never uh, we shut down in China at the very beginning, um, but we're very uh, quickly uh, put tactics in place to get back up and running safely. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in the U.S., uh, we didn't miss a beat. Uh, Our operations continued without any uh, issue. And and actually, we've been operating all during this pandemic. And, you know, I think when we think about, uh, so that's operations, right? We were able to continue to keep continuity of our supply chain, continued to keep continuity of our operations. Then the next question was, well, how are we going to support bringing uh, users onto technology? Because uh, now, you know, Patients aren't going into the physician's office. Many physician clinics were closed. Some had started to adopt telehealth, but you know it was pretty spotty in the beginning. And so we very rapidly rolled out virtual training tools, virtual support tools for our clinics to be able to continue to uh, bring new users onto Omnipod. I think those were some great learnings for us because we learned very quickly that uh, we were making assumptions that were probably false. You know that we assumed we had to have a clinician, a clinician directly train a user. You know that that was the best way to do it. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, we learned that's not true. Uh, patients can very comfortably get uh, up and running on the technology in the comfort of their own home. Interesting. And uh, and that was a great learning for us. You know, both users that live with type two and users that live with type one. Uh, very effectively trained at home, and in some cases, a much better experience both for the trainer and for uh, the new customer because we were able to, for example, train an entire family in a sitting where you Mm -hmm. wouldn't really have that opportunity if they have to travel to a clinic to get trained. The trainer was able to see more information, you know, interacting with somebody at home uh, than they might get in the clinic. And so all of those things were very helpful and I think demonstrated in just how uh, well-embraced and well-reviewed our virtual training tools were. I would also think they're just more comfortable. I mean, we can denigrate Zoom conversations all you want, but you're right. You're in your own home as opposed to being in some sitting on some bench in some doctor's office. It's just yeah. And the anxiety so, that comes with yeah. being in a physician's office. And um, yeah. yeah, so you think, you know, we train very young kids uh, in some cases and, and older, less tax, tech savvy people and mm-hmm. uh, to make sure that they're comfortable in their environment so that they can ask the questions that come to mind and, um, and train others in the family. It's very helpful. Mm-hmm. The other area that we've been focused on is preserving the well-being of our communities. And so uh, we've been very involved in, you know, volunteer efforts in uh, providing PPE throughout the whole uh, year to our first responders in uh, the metro northwest area. So 
um, you know, it's been wonderful just to see the, you know, our team give back to the community and not just focus on our tasks, but also supporting everybody in, in this area. Did you benefit from, you mentioned before that you're responsible for for benefits and reimbursement and sort of helping with all of that. Did you need, did you benefit from the, the relaxation uh, from payers regarding telehealth visits? Well, I think telehealth was certainly uh, helpful for us. You know, we don't actually uh, submit for reimbursement yeah. for healthcare, but um, we saw that uh, in the endo's office, you know, last year in 2020, visits were down pretty significantly. In the first half of the year, uh, you know, 70% reduction in uh, patient visits to the endo office. And some of that then was offset by telehealth. So telehealth then made up for another 20% of that. Uh, where we were able to have physician-patient interactions. So that's helpful, you know, that our clinicians can, t- can continue to serve patients and uh, identify uh, users that, you know, might benefit from Omnipod. So while we're talking about payers, I'm just curious, how has the, the environment, how is the environment changing for, for reimbursement for these sort of devices? Well, this has been a big part of our strategy. You know, we have been driving and frankly, we've been disrupting uh, the old treatment paradigms and and care models with Omnipod. Uh, Traditionally, a tubed insulin pump and Omnipod up until two years ago, uh, they were reimbursed through the durable medical equipment channel. Hmm. You know, it's not, we saw an opportunity to bring Omnipod through the pharmacy uh, as opposed to the durable medical equipment channel to make it more broadly available and also to eliminate the upfront cost. So in the durable medical equipment channel, what happens is um, somebody uh, for insulin pump therapy Typically, a payer or a user is charged a few thousand dollars up front for the insulin pump, and then they are locked into a four-year contract. And uh, this is why payers put a bunch of hurdles in place for adoption of the technology, because they want to make sure that the user is motivated so that they get the outcomes benefit and that the user is going to stick with it for the Mm four-year contract that they're paying up front for. We thought, well, this isn't a very consumer-friendly model, and it's one of the hurdles to getting more people to adopting pump or pod technology. And uh, so we started to explore the pharmacy channel. And what we did in the pharmacy channel was we eliminated all upfront cost. We um, said that a user or a payer only needs to pay for the pods, presumably as the user is using them and getting the outcomes benefits from them. Oh, I see. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that then eliminated a lot of the upfront barriers that payers put in place for users to adopt the technology. And we didn't lock anybody into any type of timeframe. You can, frankly, you can try the technology for free. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just know that we've got great loyalty rates and great retention rates and that if somebody tries it, they're, they're going to want to use it. And so that's what we rely on to keep our customers and to win our customers. And it's enabled us to bring our technology to a lot more people who otherwise wouldn't have access to it. The pods are recharged by the another cartridges purchased and, and the old cartridges removed. They're disposable. They're, they're disposable. Mm-hmm. Our pods are disposable. Yep. So, uh, so it really is perfectly suited for the pharmacy channel. Because uh, it's, you know, it is where um, people living with diabetes are going to get their continuous glucose monitors, Mm -hmm. their blood glucose strips, their insulin. And uh, this is simply, you know, very similar uh, in in concept, right? It's a disposable, you know, recurring revenue model that's very well suited to the pharmacy channel. Let's talk briefly about uh, uh, Omnipod 5. And then I'd also like to just kind of wrap up with how you're, what's in the future, how you're innovating and what's to come up what's to come next, but uh, talk about Omnipod 5, what's different about it. And you've also had some recent collaborations, which I think this is related to that maybe we could speak to as well. Sure. Great. Uh, so Omnipod 5 is our um, uh, automated insulin delivery system. 
and what that for short we call AID. Mm-hmm. And what an AID is, is uh, a continuous glucose monitor communicating directly to an insulin pump or pod uh, with an algorithm. And that's uh, what Omnipod 5 is, but it is incredibly differentiated. We are in partnership for this uh, first generation with Dexcom. And so uh, the Dexcom and the pod speak directly to each other. There's a sophisticated algorithm that is on the pod. And that algorithm uh, takes a CGM reading every five minutes. And based on that reading, it looks out an hour in the future and it predicts where your blood glucose is going. And then it gives you a micro dose of insulin uh, every five minutes to uh, keep you in range. Uh, so this is incredible because we talked about the 300 uh, decisions that somebody living with diabetes has to make every day. What this does is dramatically sure. reduce uh, those number of decisions and the cognitive burden of diabetes. There will still be a few uh, situations where a user has to, uh, for example, when they eat, they'll still have to announce a meal and dose for the carbohydrates. But the rest of it is highly automated. Uh, what it is showing in pre-pivotal data is an incredible improvement in time and range, uh, incredible uh, control in terms of hypoglycemia. And users rated the usability of the system up there with an iPhone. So really easy to use um, and uh, really terrific control. So we could not be more excited. This has been um, one of the most anticipated innovations in all of the diabetes pipeline, not just insulates pipeline. And one of the really exciting things we're delivering with this is phone control. So uh, you'll be able to control the system by a secure app on your mobile phone. And so we get to eliminate the remote controller of the system. And a user will simply put on a pod, put on a Dexcom sensor, download an app, and be able to be off to the races managing their diabetes. Uh, So very, very exciting. So that's how they would announce a meal through either, well, they previously would have done it through a remote, remote that you provide, but in the future, it'll be through an app on a phone. That's right. Yeah. So it's really, uh, really exciting, really easy to use and a lot of benefits for us being able to go directly to the phone, uh, securely be able to communicate with these, these devices. That's outstanding. And how about your relationship with Abbott? What's that going to lead to? So Abbott's our uh, next, we have uh, great partnerships with both Dexcom and Abbott uh, and have announced that we will be integrating with their future technologies. So Dexcom has a very exciting pipeline and we will integrate with those technologies. And Abbott uh, Libre obviously has been, uh, you know, exploding in growth and we have a partnership with Abbott and that's in development as well. So our next generation system will integrate with both Abbott and Dexcom. And then, uh, you know, a lot of exciting um, things around phone platforms. The first system that we launched this year, which will launch in just a, a few months, will be controlled via an app on your Android phone. And uh, future generation will be iOS. So I'm very excited about that. That's great. Did you have thoughts about developing your own sensors or were you always planning on a partnership? Because I think that's a real interesting way to go. I think if you look at where what Dexcom and Abbott have done in the marketplace, uh, it's pretty extraordinary. And mm-hmm. both, you know, it is a very sophisticated, very difficult to manufacture technology. And so we feel like we've got great partnerships with them. You know, there's some really interesting technologies on the horizon. There, there might be 40 early stage CGMs in development. So we'll see how the market plays out, but we could not be more delighted with our partnerships with Abbott and Dexcom. And final question, just looking at the future of uh, innovation-wise, uh, where do the good ideas come from? I feel as if you're probably really engaged with your users, your patients, and really trying to understand what, what they need as opposed to just technological advancement. But what, but what does R&D look like? What does that process look like? And, and what will Insulate be providing this community in four or five years? What's, what's next? 
Yeah. I, well, I think you're right that, um, you know, that intimacy with our customers is what drives our innovation. And so we've got uh, incredible capabilities around uh, human factors, user interface research, where we engage, you know, uh, Omnipod users, we engage multiple daily injection users, we engage tube pump users uh, to really help us inform our technologies. And so that, that intimacy with our end user is, is part of our whole innovation from concept development through to uh, delivering of the technology. When we think about where we're focused, we're focused one on simplicity. We know uh, that the cognitive burden of this disease is incredible and our advantage is in the simplicity of our pod, but we see opportunity to drive more and more simplicity um, for people living with diabetes across every aspect of how they interface with our technology and also across our innovative um, access models. We're focused on outcomes. Uh, you know, this uh, step up with Omnipod 5 and the algorithm and the integration with CGM enables us to make a massive impact on outcomes. We will take people who are, you know, in the 60% time and range and we will move them into the 70, 75% time and range. It is a massive improvement in outcomes. Uh, but we see this is just the beginning and we can continue to advance our algorithm and data science to be able to deliver better outcomes over the long term. Uh, we see uh, empowerment. You know, it's really interesting when you think about where we are with data. With Omnipod 5, we now get all of the CGM data coming in. We get how the user is interfacing with the system. We get the insulin delivery data and then how that's impacting the CGM. That, that is an incredible amount of data for us to deliver insights back to the user. Insights like, you know, every time you uh, work out on Tuesday, you go low, you may want to consider adjusting your setting, things like that. So that, that insight allows us to empower our users. And then as you think about now we're on the phone. So if the user consents, we may have access to their calendar, to their open table reservations, to mm -hmm. all sorts of uh, pieces of data that could give us insights to help empower our users. Um, you know, we might say where you ate dinner at on <laughs> Thursday night, right? Uh, you know, you should have bolused or you could have bolused bigger to get a better uh, outcome there. Those are the types of things that uh, are really exciting in terms of where this could go to generate insights for our users, for clinicians and for payers over the horizon. So a lot of really exciting stuff. And, you know, we are particularly differentiated in the type two space. Mm -hmm. uh, we haven't talked a lot about that, but we have, a, we have significant advantages there. And so when we think about our innovation pipeline, you know, uh, diabetes and in particular type two diabetes is a global epidemic. It is growing in uh, crazy proportions across the globe. Uh, and we have, uh, we believe, technologies and innovations that are going to really help address what is one of the most, um, you know, significant world health problems uh, across the globe. Does type 2, and, and I'm ignorant about this, but does that usually require some insulin treatment? About 10% who, really? who live with type 2 diabetes. It's a progressive disease. So yeah. people uh, will fail lifestyle modification and they'll fail um, you know, uh, medical management and eventually progress into um, insulin uh, therapy. And that's really where Omnipod comes in. Um, and its simplicity uh, and its access uh, model through the pharmacy are particularly important for people living with type 2 diabetes. Interesting. Well, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I've learned a ton. Chasey, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it's been great, Tom. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, it was a fantastic conversation with Shacey Petrovic of Insulet. Great to talk to her and uh, to have another to have a Massachusetts CEO on the program. Yay, Bay State. Woo, Bay State. <laughs> Chris Newmarker, where can folks find you on the old social? 
Hey, you can find me on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, just like a new marker. I'm on Twitter at Newmarker. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing that clubhouse thing a little bit with you, Tom. Uh, when, when can people join us on Monday? We, we will be on Monday at 11.30 a.m. Eastern All time. Right. We will have uh, Chris Newmarker will be there if they're be there to talk about the uh, about the uh, Newmarkers Newsmakers, but we're also going to have a, a great conversation about uh, biomedical programs That'd and how they uh, help entrepreneurs uh, create new companies and, and learn how to find shortcomings in the healthcare industry. So it'll be a great conversation. You know, I, I don't know you about you, but these Monday clubhouses, I'm kind of like treating them a bit like, hey, this is like in a way, it's like the old-fashioned newspaper open house. It's like, come on in, right. have a chat with the editor. You know, if there's some news you think that really needs to be covered, you know, come on yeah. in. No, this. Have yeah, a chat or if with you us. have a story to tell of your own about uh, your own entrepreneurial efforts, we certainly would, certainly would love to uh, to hear what you're up to. Please, it's a great up. If you have a critique of something, always open for ways to make myself better, happier. When you have something nice to say about something we did, I'd love to hear that. You know, it's like, you know, I, it's, good, it's good to develop. I, I may, I may Piers Morgan it though. I may Piers Morgan it and walk off if people are too critical of me. I just walk I off and say, this. I can't, I can't take nah, this. I'm not. I'm just. <laughs> I'm not that. I, I'm willing to. Li- I'm always willing to listen. It's all good. I am also on the clubhouse at MedTech Tom. I'm on Twitter at MedTech Tom, and of course on LinkedIn. So uh, please do connect with us there. Please do share these uh, this podcast on uh, LinkedIn and on Twitter. And if you do tag Chris and myself, we'd love to be part of that conversation. And Chris is absolutely right. We'd love to see you on Clubhouse at 11.30 a.m. And uh, please do bring any comments, criticisms, or thoughts of what we can do to make the podcast better. It's, uh, it's great to, uh, to be able to hear directly from folks. But uh, certainly hope you have enjoyed this conversation. Once again, share it. Once again, subscribe. This, uh, if you subscribe, you'll get it along with hundreds of other people before, uh, before we post it on social media. So uh, it doesn't hurt to push the subscribe button and make sure you subscribe, you're- <laughs> like share, <laughs> do it all, do it. And uh, <laughs> tune in next week. We'll have another great uh, episode of the device talks weekly podcast waiting for you. Hey, take care. Remember to set your clocks for an hour on, on Saturday night. Subscribe, like share, do it.